Public service announcement. Please join us live on Podbean Sunday, July 26th at 7 p.m., where we will be going head-to-head with the Psychedelic Podcast, where we will be discussing stories that we usually don't talk about on our podcast. Join us Sunday, July 26th at 7 p.m. Eastern. Hit it! Hit it! Welcome to Pod Jerky. I'm your host, Master Impressive. Thanks for joining us. We have a very special guest who goes by the name of Frankenstein, a.k.a. Frankenstein or Frankiano. Who is this Frankenstein? Is he a doctor or a scientist, perhaps? Actually, a little bit of both when it comes to music. Frankenstein is a hip-hop music producer and rapper from Toronto, the T-Dot, and is a notable and influential artist in the music industry who's played a major role in hip-hop music and production during the golden era of hip-hop, which would be the late 80s, 90s. Some notable artists that have worked with Frankenstein are Cardinal, Chocolaire, Thrust, and Nelly Furtado. Other notable artists that have done collabs with Frankenstein are Bahamadia. So now we'll get into a little bit of the bio that uh, you sent me a little while back, and we'll start off with your training. You were classically trained at the Conservatory for Music, and that started at the age of six. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. So my parents, like many, I would say that are in you know Canada, Ontario, and Toronto specifically, are immigrant Italians, mm. and uh, you know music was always a real important thing for them. Um, You know, my father kind of, and I remember going back just in history, they were too poor to take any music lessons from where they came from. So when he sat me down, he, it was almost like one of his dreams was to play music and he never got the opportunity to do so. So he enrolled me, I think I was like grade one, something like that, now six years old. And I first started playing the accordion to be, I mean, that was like his dream, right? So here I am, you know, in grade one, I don't think... And we've all been there. You don't know anything like anything put in front of you seems exciting. And, sure. and you got to remember, like, you know, we're talking about an era of time where electronics did not exist. You know, there were there were like 12 channels on TV and we had a black and white television. Like we came from like real humble beginnings. So there wasn't much of any excitement. And, you know, Toronto having long winters and whatnot, like if it's summer, you're out playing. If you're indoor, there isn't much to do. So you put anything in front of, I think, a grade one kid, like whether it's a guitar, piano, accordion, like they don't know the difference, right? But by the time I think I was getting into like grade five, grade six, I started to realize that the accordion wasn't a very cool instrument. <laughs> I mean, like it, it wasn't, yeah. right? It wasn't something that, that was cool. And, and I obviously was teased like a lot by friends and so forth. My training in music allowed me though to read music and to kind of cross boundaries. So I quickly went into playing the saxophone and learning how to play jazz. And I was in, you know, the school orchestra and the jazz band. And I started to really appreciate the fundamentals of music and how great geniuses like Bach and Mozart and sophisticated, you know, music composers put things together. So unknowingly, like, I I wish I can tell you, like, this was like a foresight, like I had a super plan. This is really in hindsight that I'm able like to kind of turn around and say, you know, what gave me maybe, you know, my signature sound or what gave me the ability to maybe be slightly different than what others might have been doing in the genre of hip hop 
was my humble beginnings of like how I was introduced to music might have been slightly different than a lot of other people. And everyone's got their story. And this one happens to be mine. And that's that's how that whole, you know, I mean, conservatory of music came into shaping me, I would say. You can tell, especially with the classically trained musicians, that that knowledge, the structure of the music comes through in all of your work to date. I think you can really tell a big difference because if you just listen to somebody just chopping up beats on a computer and they don't have that training, I think it's a vital foundation. And if you're lacking it, it puts you behind the eight ball right from the start. 100%. Like I'm going to give you like a real basic example. So, you know, everyone at some point was introduced to the Do, Re, Mi, Fa, Sol, La, Ti scale, right? Now, on, on a piano, obviously, you can play multiple notes all at the same time. So, you know, if you wanted to play a chord like a C, an E, and a G, right? and have a C major chord, you've got three sounds all playing at the same time and you create a certain sound. Well, when you're dealing with something, let's say like a saxophone, a saxophone can only play one note at a time. So it can't play C, E, and G at the same time. So in order to create a chord in that type of instrument, you have to have three different saxophones playing three different notes to create that same effect that the piano does on its own. You combine that into an orchestra where you got violins, cellos, and tubas, and you start understanding the sophistication of what a composer would have to do to try and get different moods out of things versus like the one note person, right? And, and again, you know, what's amazing about chopping beats is, as we go into this is that often in music, the limitation creates a new genius. So, for instance, saxophone musicians that could only play one note at a time had to create a new genius out of how they're doing their sound in order to, to stretch the boundaries of sonic capabilities. And that's what I learned from jazz musicians. Right? If you listen to like a Coltrane or a Miles Davis record or, you know, any of the legendary greats that the guy had the fortune of like studying growing up, I can tell you that it starts to make you it makes your mind think differently about how you approach music. I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying it's different because, like I said, you know, you might get a DJ that has no training musically at all and still has an amazing ear that is able to bring you places that you might not otherwise have done so. And, and I think that's the beauty of hip hop is that you don't have to have a prerequisite in anything to push the boundaries of what it can do for you. So you might be a, a DJ that has no classical training and still come up with stuff that just moves people. And then you might be someone that grew up playing the violin or the cello and you can move people or the guitar or the drums. And I think that's what really kind of captured me around hip hop is that the limitations of it also gave you an infinite ability to access it. So there were no boundaries or no like, hey, you must have this in order to do this. That just didn't exist. And, and that is, I think, a very powerful thing of the art form in itself is that it is so open and unlimited in that way. I totally agree. It's the, for example, if you're just stuck in a box and that's all you have to deal with, you're going to make the best of it and you're going to find ways to modify that box, make it better, make it sound slicker, you know, work with it in different ways, maybe turn the box upside down, put it on its side, you know, just dealing with whatever you have in front of you. So that's a really good insight that you mentioned there. It's really interesting. Now, from then you moved on to your interest in hip hop, but I think it started with, let's see, by what I'm reading, 
reading here, your introduction to hip hop started around what, 80, 81, 82, and then you got into breakdancing. Can you go into detail about that? Yeah. You know, this is like a real magical time in a young boy's life, I would say. And I wasn't the only young boy or girl for that matter that was experiencing this new phenomenon. So I think, and this can't be stressed enough, like I lived in a world that hip hop didn't exist and then one day did exist. And the reason why I think that is like important to note is like for a lot of young listeners, you know, they're born into a world where certain genres already exist. So for instance, when I was born, jazz was already around for a long period of time. Rock, you know what I mean? Psychedelic, like you can go through all the genres that existed before I came along. But I would say like my entire generation was introduced to this new phenomenon. And the first time that I was introduced to it, now I grew up in a humble part of town in Toronto. Um, I went to a school called George Simon Rockcliffe, literally in the Jane and Woolner area for anybody that's a local Torontonian. And that community had a lot of people that were from the Caribbean, from Jamaica, you know, I mean, from all sorts of the world, but a very heavily influenced, you know, Caribbean area. And I can tell you that going to school was almost like a double education every day. So I'm going home at night, obviously, with my Italian family. But during the daytime, I'm being exposed to all kinds of cultures, you know, people from Chile, people from South America, people, like I said, from Jamaica or different parts of the islands, um, you know, Chinese people, just just people that as a youngster, they're giving you an education on their culture. And, you know, recess time and after school started to really morph into like guys demonstrating these dance moves that, like I said, as a youngster are just blowing you away. Like you've never seen people's bodies move this way to those sounds. It, they weren't on radio. So I think this is what's really important. It's like, it's not like that you come home and hear hip hop on the radio or you see it on TV. It didn't exist in that format. So the only way you're seeing it is that people are demonstrating it in front of you and they're playing it on these boom boxes. And why I call it so magical is that it wasn't being sold to you. So hip hop was not something that was being sold to an audience. It was almost the most organic experience I've ever had as far as you know, I mean, culture goes where it was like it either catches you or it didn't catch you. And it, for, for me, it was mesmerizing. Like I said, like the way people body rocked and the way they you know, I mean, did their thing. And then, you know, these drum machines with break beats that were coming on that, like I said, you just couldn't hear them anywhere but in the playground. You know, at, at the same time, you know, you're playing basketball, you're watching all this happen in front of you. And it gets even deeper than that because it wasn't just the way they moved. It was, you know, the way we all started speaking to one another. Right. So. You know, bad was not bad anymore. Like bad meant good. If you were sick, you weren't ill. You were ill in a way that was impressive, right? So everything about hip hop, as far as the language, movement, and culture, was like pushing the boundaries of acceptability, right? You know, the fast shoelaces, you know, Run DMC's influence, and all kinds of things that if you had to put it in a magic bottle and say, how did this one little thing do this? It's mesmerizing. That's why I call it magical because you know it wasn't intentionally done. It had a life of its own. And that is, like I said, my first introduction to it. And obviously I tried to, like I was breakdancing as well, but it wasn't a forte of mine, right? I would say that I was into it, but I started to get deeper in the sense that I wanted to make the music that was influencing people to move or to feel a certain way. Like I can say that even at that time, it gave you a certain confidence of belonging if you were dialed in to that particular movement. And to this day, I would say it's like one of the most magical experiences that any person could ever have. And sometimes I feel that a lot of the youth today 
have been, I don't want to use the word neglected or haven't had an opportunity to have that same impression made on them. So while I'm sure, you know what I mean? A lot of the new music is, you know, great as well. They might not have had exactly the same type of experience because it's such a corporate commodity that you get blasted as far as like the, the money part of it, where that had not entered the hip hop evolution yet at that time anyway. I agree with that as well, because with these younger kids now with the music, that's really what they know. I mean, if they actually go out of their way to start digging on YouTube or checking out, you know, interviews, blogs, whatever there is out there, that's the only way that they're going to be able to be introduced to this. Otherwise, let's face it, the old school stuff just isn't pushed. And even back when you guys were really hot, and I mean, you still are, but just the promotion here in Canada, especially in Toronto, it's been so negligent and lacking all these years. And you guys just never got the love that you needed. Because if you did, I'm telling you, you guys already are big stars throughout the world. You have huge followings all over the place. And not just you. I mean, most of the guys that started out, you know, the, were the first ones in the game to get this off the ground. You know, your fans are still there. We're all still there. We're all pretty much in the same age bracket. So we grew up with the same influences. We were listening listening to the same music. We were watching the same breakdancing movies and specials and all that stuff. And especially for you guys who were listening to the college radio, that was basically for the people in the know back then who were actually looking for the music and trying to find out what this new sound was. It wasn't being played anywhere. And the only way that you could get an experience out of this or from this or just trying to find it was through some of the shows through the college radio, you know. You were mentioning Ron Nelson, DJX, Mastermind, uh, Power Move. I think Thrust was on there for a little bit. That's right. That was basically the introduction for a lot of the artists at the time. And they were just like, wow, this is amazing. I want in on this. This is what I want to do. And I think that's where you guys all fell in, you know, this big group. And it's also really good to see that you guys are all still part of it and you're hanging out and you're still working together. That's I think that's really important. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's just a, I think it's a testament to the like I said, the era that we grew up in and how it evolved for us. And mm-hmm. and you mentioned you know, like there's a handful of key DJs in the city, you know, Jim Browski, maybe, um, you know, DJ Power. Like there's a, I would say like there's maybe like, you know, starting from scratch, I remember, I mean, he's still a big DJ, but, you know, starting from scratch would be, a, you know, Star Sound, which was like one of the key pivotal you know, record stores in the city that even brought in that music. So at the time, it was like play the record and star sound, you know, the, the two. And, and I can tell you that those dudes are more responsible as a collective for doing for hip hop in this city than just about anybody else, just because of exactly what you said. They were instrumental as the conduit to bring it to an audience, whether it be college radio or at the underground club scene um, or wherever they happen to be spinning. It was their responsibility for sure. And that's why we have the kind of scene we had then. No doubt about that. So would you equate Star Sound to, let's say, Fat Beats in New York? Was it at that kind of same level or was it different? Like I've been to Fat Beats quite a few times and obviously like they were an instrumental record store. And I would say that probably the combination of Play the Record and Star Sound was the equivalent of maybe what a Fat Beats was. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you wanted to pick up a hip hop record at that time, those were the only two locations that 
personally I knew in the city. And I would say like 99% of every DJ or hip hop connoisseur or anybody into the movement, that was the only place you could even get those records. And, um, you know, I remember like when Steezle first came out um, with It's My Turn and and I was like, I gotta get this record. And it was intimidating because, you know, you remember like we are a real young age. So going downtown Toronto with your friends um, to go into environments that you're not quite comfortable or ready to be comfortable with, it was like, again, just like a mind blowing thing. You walk, it almost felt like I was walking into a new world completely, like a world running in parallel with what everyone else is. But I would call it like a fight club for anyone that's watched the movie where it's like hip hop heads, new other hip hop heads, just by, you know what I mean? Like their walk, their slang, their disposition, you know what I mean? All that kind of stuff, you know? So it was also like some great memories that I remember like walking into those stores countless of times, you know, bumping heads with people you know and all that kind of stuff like and that's where i got to meet a lot of these guys that were so influential you'd see them on a regular basis and you start to get acquainted with them so yeah no doubt about it i think that uh, those two locations were the, were the ones that made a difference did you run into thrust during one of these trips into these uh, stores or was it totally oh wait i think you were talking about you guys were at the same high school correct that's right. So, um, running me collegiate, which was like a few blocks from Jane and Woolner, like the, you know, the, the general area, like of the schools that I went into, um, thrust was, you know, at that school, as was a, a guy named Day, who was Shaw Claire's manager, not at the time, but became Shaw Claire's manager. And, you know, to be honest with you, that school was a microcosm, I think, of what the Toronto scene was like. So that school had a lot of different types of cultures and people in the school, right? Like you had, you know, a, a ton of, you know, white folks, you had a ton of like, you know, European folks, you had a ton of Caribbean folks. You, you just had like, if you wanted to take a snapshot of what the Toronto landscape was as far as demographics, Running Me Collegiate would have been a good example because it had a mix of everything. And, you know, the hip hop scene in that school was pretty profound, right? Um, there was a very big ball culture because Running Me Collegiate at the time was one of the top basketball schools in the city, if not the country. I happened to play on the basketball team there. So it was, um, I think it was like a perfect marriage for somebody that wanted to have a sense of like an identifying culture, which a lot of young people find certain things about themselves out in those high school years. I mean, obviously you, you start becoming a young adult and, and it morphs into something else, but it's a real interesting thing to be able to turn around to people and say, Hey, listen, while I was growing up, hip hop was growing up. So if we gave hip hop a personality and said it was a person, I would say it's growing up at the same time. All these young kids are growing up all at the same time. So hip hop is learning itself. And then all these youthful kids are learning how to be men and women in the world at the same time, which is a unique experience to have happen, right? To say like, as a culture is moving and developing, so is an entire demographic who is responsible for creating this culture. And it was, like I said, just trying to find itself. And that's where I first met Thrust, you know what I mean? Him trying to find himself, obviously, as a rapper, me trying to find out how I fit into this culture, which, and I can't stress this enough in the sense that I always felt like I was a guest to the culture, meaning that I was being invited in. It wasn't something that was culturally from my background, right? Yeah. You know what I mean? That became you know, something that I was really aware of at an early age, which is like, I'm a guest to this thing, hip hop, as much as I do it and I love it and it's in me. 
it doesn't necessarily come from my ancestral roots the way it might for other people that are following this culture. Yeah, it was good that you basically were all part of this hip hop family growing up together. That's basically what it was. And that, you know, everybody was accepted. Everybody brought their own particular talent, their sound. I remember listening to some of the interviews. They would have beat battles, breakdance battles, all sorts of MC battles, DJing, I think. There was some DJing going on, if I'm not mistaken, during the lunches. Yes. After school, I think pretty much all the time. And from my point of view, I think all of you guys were meant to be there. I think this is what you were meant to do. And you can tell because most of the guys that are still in the game now, they love what they do. And would they be doing anything else? Would you be doing anything else? I don't think so. Am I right? 100%. And that's what I'm saying. Like, um, you can't, that's the part that you can't train people. Like it's either in you or it's not in you. Right. So it wasn't like, anybody ever kind of sold us on the idea that, you know what I mean? You needed to be part of this thing. It compelled you. It allowed you to be who you wanted to be. And it pulled you in without trying. Because you gotta remember like at the time that anybody's doing it, there's actually no money in it of any kind, right? There wasn't like nobody was taking home big paychecks to do this thing called hip hop. You know, there was no real, you know, light at the under the tunnel, like you're going to become like this incredible artist and make tons of money. I mean, some of the guys that were top in the game at that time were not making big money. And you can, you can just see by some of the records that were even coming out, you know, when, when rock Kim and paid and pull says, you know, I dig deep into my pocket and still coming up with Lent. It's like, you know, I hit the studio. So I'm paid in full. It's like a play on stuff. Like, cause all those guys, you know what I mean? were coming from real humble beginnings. You know what I mean? Like nobody was walking away with, you know, $20 million deals and, and things that are obviously rather, almost ordinary today for big artists to have. Like if you were at the top of your game in 1990, you know, you're still barely scraping by. You know what I mean? Some of the early KRS-One stories, I mean, there couldn't have been a bigger artist during the early 90s than KRS-One or some of these other guys. Like, it's not like they were, you know, stacking up the chips. And, and that's what I find amazing about the hip hop culture, at least at that time, was that there was a real integrity around the philosophy of why you're even doing it, right? And, um, yeah. And it changes the product, right? I mean, that goes, I think, without say with anything. If you're not really doing simply for a paycheck, it changes the kind of product that is going to come out the other side, whether we're doing, you know, artwork, uh, you know, whether somebody's going out to you know, make a fine wine or whatever else you do. If money's not the driving factor, the resulting composition ends up just becoming different. And, and that's why I think they call it the golden era, at least from my perspective, is because it's golden for these very reasons. People doing it, growing up at the same time without an anticipation or an expectation or an entitlement of a big paycheck at the end of it. And that changes right away what you're going to end up having. Absolutely. Because, you know, the saying goes, if you're doing what you love, then you'll be enjoying it, even if the money doesn't show up. But usually if you do what you love, people will experience that and appreciate it. And then the money will eventually show up in one way or another. But if you're doing it straight for the cash, I mean, the heart and soul is not there. And I don't think you can actually continue in that vein and keep doing what you're doing. So let's say you don't make money, then, you know, where's your incentive? It's gone, right? Exactly. uh, And that's why years later, to your point, even though I'm not making any serious money doing hip hop, I still do hip hop every day. 
It's how I walk into the world with a hip hop mindset. You know what I mean? Flip the script kind of thing, right? Like everything is about pushing the envelope and flipping the script for me to this day. It's like I walk around with a hip hop mentality. And that's the beauty of it. I wonder if we can get into a little bit when you started off with your career. I think you said that you started building your studio and you started recording some early demos. By the, let's say, early 90s, you came up with your own record label, Knowledge of Self, and you put out your own music. I think there was Peace and Quiet was your first single. And shortly after that, it was The Pain, I think. That's right. So, um, man, you know, like just looking back in hindsight, I find to be like an, a, a real, once again, just magical experience because here we are, we're trying to get signed. Okay. So it's myself, a guy named AZ, which was my best friend at the time. Um, we put a studio together, a guy named David Oy, who ended up managing Nelly Vitaro as our, as a tour manager. We all went to run a collegiate and, you know, we're getting to the point of saying, Hey, listen, let's see if we can get signed. So again, there was no Google. There's no way to search out record labels back then. So what we essentially did was we went back to our cribs. We took addresses down of every record label that appeared on the back of records we already had. You know what I mean, whether it be, you know, Rakim, Diamond D, like, you, you know, brand new music, whoever was out, we're, we're taking down like all these record label addresses. We get in a car and we drive to New York City and we start knocking on every single record company's door that we can. You know what I mean? Like very, bro- you know, we had a lot of bravado, you know, we're like 17, 18 year old kids just just going in there demanding to speak to the A&R to get signed. As the story goes, of course, we get shut down by everybody. You know what I mean? And, and Peace and Quiet was, you know, one of the you know songs on the demo. So we come back um, being discouraged, of course, but encouraged at the same time. And, and what I mean by that is we turn around and say, listen, the only difference between a record and a demo, we felt, was like the format it was being presented on. So we made a judgment call after that particular trip that we were not going to shop any more demos ever again that we were going to put our money where our mouth was and um, we pressed our demo peace and quiet. And about, I would say about two weeks later, we went down to Manhattan again. And this time we had something like 5,000 records pressed. Wow. And 12 inches, something like that. Twelve. It was either 5,000 or 2,000 run. But the more principal part of the story is I can tell you that the first 1,000 12 inches, we gave them away for free. We just went to every college radio station that we knew about or somebody told us about to give them to DJs for free and say, hey, listen, this is a new label coming out of Toronto. It had interest because we were out of Toronto. And and I think this is what really amazing about hip hop back then is that most 12 inches and most records didn't always have a picture of the artist on it. So a lot of 12 inches coming out back then were just basically a black label, you know, black cover um, with some, you know, writing of who the artist was, but you didn't really get to see what the artist looked like. So hip hop and music back then was making a sonic impression on the audience, not a visual one and a sonic one, the way it is today. I mean, like obviously today YouTube hits and like you see the music at the same time you hear the music. But back then you were being judged simply on the sonic ability of the music. No DJ, you know what I mean? knew who was on this record. They just judge it for the merit of what it sounded like. And I got to tell you then, a few short weeks of us making this trip, we start getting a ton of calls because our phone number now is on this record. And we start getting a ton of call from college radio DJs that are asking us to do interviews in New York. 
to say, hey, you know what? Um, we'd like to talk to this dude named Frankenstein and AZ um, and who produced this and like and the story behind it. And I don't have all my facts here, maybe straight, but I can tell you there's a pretty good chance that we may have technically been the first or one of the first that actually we didn't just rap on the record. We just didn't produce it. We were also our own label. So what does that mean? Like, there were a lot of people that were producing and rapping. And then there were a few people that were producing and rapping on their own record. But they were being put out by somebody else. We might have actually been one of the first, second, third, like in that range of anywhere in North America, if not the world, that were technically producing, rapping, and put it out on their own label before anybody else. Now, not that it's super meaningful and we didn't plan it that way. You just look back and say, yeah, you know, there are a ton of rapper producers, but not a ton that actually put it out themselves. And we did that simply because, like I said, the situation called for it. Like we weren't getting picked up. We weren't getting signed. And we kind of put our money where our mouth was. Now, all of us were working part-time jobs. And we went deep into our own pockets and said, listen, if, if we believe in ourselves, this is how we're going to do it. And from there, we started getting, like I said, not just airplay, but we started getting um, like Fat Beats and a few other record stores across like the UK and Japan that were into hip hop, you know, just calling us for the record. And, and I can't remember what the number was, but I think we ended up selling somewhere in around 20 to 30,000 of the peace and quiet, uh, first 12 inch, you know, which kind of blew us away. Yeah. Blew us away. Like we were not expecting that. And I mean, I remember being interviewed on the DJ Riz show and searching Bob Beetle was playing us like, we didn't even know the magnitude, to be honest with you, of what we were doing. We just knew that we loved doing what we were doing and that we needed to do this. And and that's that's the way we chose to do it. And, and then when we obviously came back to Toronto, a lot of these same DJs started hearing the fact that we were getting some love in New York City and started reciprocating here. And, and we just started to create uh, a bit of momentum for for the Frank. And, you know, there was a lot of people asking us, you know, what I mean, why do you call yourself Frankenstein? How did that come about and all that kind of stuff? So it was really interesting. That's a fantastic insight on the whole mechanism, how you guys got started, what was going on. And like you said, you guys were really young. You guys were making this up as you were going along. And that's the take that you get away from all the artists that were, you know, running in the game with you guys at that time. You guys were just like doing your own stuff, going down to the States, you know, knocking on that door, going in, hey, I'm so-and-so, here's my music. I want a deal. Let's go. That type of thing. And I'm telling you, that takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of confidence. And it speaks to the, I guess, the innocence and the naivete, I guess, in that you guys didn't know any better. You were just approaching this from this new music point of view and just running with it. And that's why I think that the quality, the authenticity, the originality, you can see it in the music. It's there. It's tangible. Like You can tell when your track comes on that's Frankenstein. You can listen to it over and over and over and over again. You don't get tired of it. The stuff that I've been hearing and even some of the stuff that you've been releasing from the vault on your YouTube channel, just like, man, if these kids knew what was out there, and I mean, we're trying to do what we can in terms of promotion on our podcast website. We have our podcast blog. We have our featured podcast guest section, things like that. You know, people are checking it out. 
But in terms of the new kids looking at it, I don't know. I think there has to be some sort of documentary. I, like, I don't know how you guys can reach the younger crowd or even if you want to, or maybe it has to happen in an organic way, like you were saying, where they actually want to look for it. They want to experience something new. And some of them are, but the numbers, I think, are very small. 100%. You know what? I, I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because... You know, during the course of my own evolution, I've always found it difficult to, you know, to say, okay, what could it be? What should it be? And, you know, I came across a word the other day that kind of described it really well. Um, and the word was esoteric. And when I looked up the definition and I was like, you know, it said something to the effect that we're only a select group of people get something. Right. So like an esoteric group might be like a specialized group or, or, you know, maybe a select few that actually ever really get this thing. Right. And, and for instance, you know, maybe a group of scientists that helped figure out how to break the atom might have been called an esoteric group. And I started thinking like during that time in our history and maybe even to this day, a certain portion of hip hop, that golden era, because now obviously hip hop has morphed into so many things like I could. And I might I don't want to sound condescending when I say this. I can tell you that like a lot of things that are called hip hop to this day. Somebody had asked me then, does this sound like hip hop? Is it hip hop? I would probably say no. It might be great music. It's good music, but it's not hip hop. Like hip hop was a very specific thing then. Um, now it seems like it has grown, which is, I think, is fabulous in one way, but it changes like its effect of that esoteric feeling of like, what was the specialness part of being hip hop? What was most special about it? And and I think when you take it in that context, so much of what the, today's audience is introduced to is missing all those elements. Like hip hop comes out now and it's like so much of that culture that was in that music is missing from today's sound. And it has evolved like it can never go back in time. And I always tell people, it's not necessarily a suggestion to go back in time, but I can tell you that what made me a great hip hop artist was also studying the greats of where it was coming from. So James Brown, for instance, is about as responsible for hip hop as any MC would ever be because, you know, so much of it came from the sounds that they were making then that morphed into what hip hop became. So hip hop has a way, if you're really paying attention to pull you into it, like what you're saying, organic. So you study the lessons and you learn from, from certain things and, and something that hip hop taught me that I apply now in my you know daily regimen, which is I realized that the world existed long before Frankenstein ever got here. So it would almost be arrogant to not understand that you got a millennia of history that is why the world works the way it is. And if you, within yourself, don't have the ability to kind of dig a little bit and understand why your world is the way it is, then you're going to always forever live a shallow existence. And you will never find the depths of humanity that I think what hip hop is a part of, right? a mechanism to make you understand that, you know, you push the trend and you push the future. But you also have to understand where it came from in order to connect the dots. If you don't have the ability to look forward, look at your present and look backwards, then you will never, I don't think, fulfill the human experience, which I feel hip hop is just dialed into. Like hip hop is a human experience if you understand it the way I feel I understand it and those that I grew up with and, and those that still get it understand it. Absolutely. And another thing, too, it also comes down to the experience that was put through in the music. So talking about, you know, the hardships of every day, working for that paycheck day to day, the struggles, 
the ups, the downs, you know, the good and bad of life. And now it just seems to be, you know, about money, broads, cars. You know, at the end of the day, life is more than just the products out there that are being sold to you. It's about us as people, our relationships, what we're going through in our lives, the bigger story, the bigger picture out there. And that's what I think that message that came through in the music. I think that's what basically united everybody together. So, And listen, there were always elements of that because there's parts of that too. But I mean, if you take an example, Eric B. and Rakim's first album, that's an entire album where I think it'd be very hard to find a single lyric where Rakim is talking about a car or talking about houses or talking about, you know what I mean, like girls. Like I'm not saying they weren't relevant subject matters because they were, but if you listen to like one of the most iconic albums that were ever created, almost none of those subjects even enter the conversation and even paid in full. The actual one of the lead tracks was we're talking about how to get paid in full. You know what I mean? How to get there because you're not there. And it's, it's coming from a place of humility and something that I can't find in like fathom today is when I got, I hear artists coming out today, almost being condescending to their audience for not having, you know, the kind of money they have, but it's almost like ironic because the only way you would have this money, if it wasn't for the audience that is begging to be with you. So, so true. Yeah. Right. It's like, I shake my head and say, wait a second, you got a guy from the stage insulting his audience or being condescending to his audience for having more jewelry or better car or bigger houses or flying on a jet and putting you in your place saying, Hey, master impressive. Like I'm on a G nine. What do you, you know what I mean? But the only way they can have those things is if their audience is following. And I find that that condescending relationship between the audience and the artist remarkable that it even works. But that's how strange our universe is today, right? Where you can have an artist be condescending. You know, I mean, like where in our world, it was genuinely about your wordplay, your skills, genuinely about like the music that you were on and its skill level. And and that was something to take pride in. Right. Like, you know, the way an artist's brush on a canvas might work is the way somebody's delivery on a microphone or, I mean, or somebody behind the drum machine or somebody. I mean, like, you know, we were part of the early DMC DJ championship circles uh, as well, like guys like DJ Grouch and I mean, and Little Jazz and a few other like legendary DJs like you know, we're on our tours when we used to. So like there was a certain respect to the skill of it. Um, and we weren't worrying about the other factors. So yeah, sorry if I was long winded there. Oh no, please. But I, that just, just to give that part, cause that's, that's kind of been uh, something that has been very strange for me. Yeah. You know, it's, I think it's really important for people to hear, you know, your perspective and what you experienced and your take on things. Because like I said, there was, let's say quite a spell where you were off the grid and some people actually thought that you were deceased. And that's actually part of your bio. It says thought to be once deceased, the revival has begun. And we'll get into some of the comments from YouTube. I mean, believe me, I got some funny stuff that I'm going to go over in a little bit. But um, just to get into a little bit more about your bio, just to finish it off, you helped mix an engineer on Thrust's first EP, Past, Present, and Future. That was done in your studio. Next, in subsequent years, uh, many of the underground artists at the time passed through your studio. And you mentioned Concrete Mob, Red Life, Cardinal, Jellystone, Danio. In 99, you were nominated for Juno for your song UV. And I think Northern Touch won out that year. But you said that 
that you all saw it as a win for all of you since you were pretty much a group going forward in this hip-hop scene? Yeah, 100%. I mean, uh, and there's a good example, right? So I'm nominated in 99 for a Juno. Now I'm going up against, obviously, Northern Touch, but everybody on Northern Touch at that time I think with the exception of the Rascals, I had recorded with, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So like Cardinal, Thrust, Shaw Claire, Checkmate, and I had a, a song together. So, I mean, to this day, it was really amazing when we went to that Juno Award because the, I think almost the entire conglomerate that was nominated was a click anyway. We, That's right. Yeah. We almost looked at it like whoever was winning that night, what we were winning. Right. I mean, because I was producing on Shaw Claire's next album. Shaw Claire was all over Cardinal stuff, you know, rap. Like, we were so, and me and Thrust had so many tracks together. It was probably the most beautiful, non competitive experience with dudes that are highly competitive that I've ever had. Right. Um, and, and I would say, you know, not to, not to make parallels, but I would say it was kind of like maybe, you know, in the dream team in basketball. Those dudes were all very competitive, but when they represented USA globally, they were together for that moment in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, and I would say like we had a bit of that at our humble level in the sense that here you got like you know Cardinal was a very competitive MC producer, um, sure. Thrust same way. The Rascals they were on their come up. Um, I was you know super competitive, but that era. It was like we all knew that we were kind of helping one another. We were we were all working together, irregardless of the competitive nature that was within us. And, and it was a beautiful thing to see and be a part of. And still to this day, one of the you know most amazing memories I had was like you know the after party where all of us you know were, were hanging out after that award, and it just felt like a family. You know what I mean? It was, it's hard to, like, genuinely just felt like that. Because no one, like I said, again, no one got paid for winning that Juno. It wasn't like, oh, my goodness, that obviously leads to other opportunities. But it was a monumental thing to just be a part of that as a conglomerate of competitive people in a genre that was super competitive to boot. No, that's amazing. I wish I was there, fly on the wall, just to experience some of that. Now, next, I think you said that your album, Agony to Ecstasy, was ready to be released, but got shelved due to some differences of opinion with your management at the time. I was wondering if you could give everybody a rundown of what happened. And that seemed to put a freeze on everything at that point. And I think that started your, I guess, self-exile, your disappearance, and had some people actually questioning whether or not you were still alive, which I find like totally yes. hilarious. It's, it's crazy. But if you just want to go into that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So... As you look at it on the surface, you're like saying, okay, it's 1999 now, 2000 shot clear goes gold. Um, things are moving like really well, just in general. Now, the hip hop scene itself globally starts changing somewhat. And I won't be the first one that, you know, I, I hate to use this word, but like when somebody was saying you need to sound more jiggy, back then that was a real thing. Like people were actually using that in regular everyday language around hip hop because it started morphing into, it started being more mature for sure. And like the underground part of it started to change. And you can probably even see in some of Shaq Claire's records around that time, or even Cardinal, where they started being a little bit more commercial in the sense that 
radio plays started becoming more important. What was going to get played in the clubs was more important or getting more important simply because of the whole bad boy movement and a lot of other things happening. Now, at the time, my manager, who was David Oy, and this is circumstantial stuff that I think occurs in life, right? David Oy is managing Nelly Curtaro now as her tour manager. And he needed obviously like a steady income given that there were certain things going on in his life on a personal level. AZ, the guy that I had grown up with and did Peace and Quiet a few years earlier, ends up um, leaving the group because of a major situation that happened in his life. So his sister gets murdered by her boyfriend in those early years. So there's a lot of moving parts to like what's happening for Frankenstein as an artist and our knowledge of self-label. Because I got to tell you, and I'm going to say this, you know what I mean, humbly always, as much as I was producing, rapping, and doing a lot of things, mixing, engineering, and putting out our own stuff, no one individual does things alone. Like we all have real help from those closest to us to get to the next level. And that was my group. Like my core of business dudes was actually Alex Sizovic, AZ, and David Oy, both of whom for different reasons had to vacate, you know what I mean, and, and not really focus on the whole knowledge itself thing. So Frankenstein as an artist now starts getting shopped more as an artist versus putting them out on our own label, which in hindsight, I would have said the trajectory of the artist Frankenstein probably would have been really different if we had just continued with knowledge itself. So knowledge itself almost takes a hiatus before Frankenstein does. That's pivotal, I think, in the discussion. So in 1999, knowledge itself is no longer putting out its own records. And now Shaw Claire's manager, Day, starts managing me because David Oy is not involved in the day to day anymore. So we start shopping the Frankenstein album. And at the time, there was a label called Landspeed. I'm not sure if you remember them, but there were a few labels that we were being shopped to at the time that were significant that I put out some Buster Rhymes tracks and so forth. So the Agony and the Ecstasy album, which there's some cuts on YouTube that were supposed to be part of that album. So for instance, um, the EP UV, which had six cuts, was a precursor to what the Agony the Ecstasy album was. And the lead track from Agony to Ecstasy is on that EP. That was the last that was the last knowledge of self-official release at that time that we had done before we started to morph into like, okay, Frankenstein now is gonna get signed to something else. And what's really crazy is we were shopping our stuff at the same time that Maestro Fresh West was coming back with. Remember that song, These Eyes? Oh, yes, yes. So sidebar to the sidebar, I actually mixed and engineered the demo for These Eyes that got Maestro signed with that track. Interesting. Uh, not a lot of people know it because I was supposed to do it. So Maestro had come to me at that time with Farley Flex with a conversation saying, hey, listen, right now, Maestro wants to come back, but he's lost a little bit of that street credibility. Not that he had been gone ever, but he didn't have like that current like hip hop boom bap that we were all doing. And he had come to me saying, listen, your records are getting played. At that time, I had the pain is out. The rain is gone. What does it all mean? Like a bunch of tracks that were really kind of putting me on at least a proverbial humble map of like, this dude's got some boom back stuff. So Maestro comes to me with the, let's get it clear in the sense that it was his idea to do these eyes. He comes to me with the sample and he's like, I want you to do a Frankenstein version of this and we're gonna shop it. We shop it, he gets it signed with Virgin, but Virgin doesn't want to do the Frankenstein boom back version. Virgin feels that it needs a more commercialized version. This is at the same time that I'm trying to shop my own Frankenstein material and I'm getting the same kind of conversations coming back at me. They're saying, listen, this was good. It's hot. It's hip hop. 
But for us to take a chance on this thing, we need it to be a little bit more commercialized. And my sound, and a volunteer to this day, my sound was never designed to be for the masses or to be commercialized. It was never the intent. I never sat down behind the boards, never produced it that way. I never even to this day sit down and think like, how can I get more listeners to do it? What I really have always done is I just let God speak to me through the boards. Like I always tell people like as artists, it's not really us that's making the music. All we really are is a conduit to whatever comes to you. And if it comes to you, you lay it down and that's what it is, right? Um, Because I can't take responsibility for making, let's say the drum machine. I didn't invent it. I didn't invent the boards. I didn't, there's so many things that go into making a track that you have to realize that you're just one little screw in this entire mechanism. So for me, when they started coming to me with this philosophy, I gotta be honest with you, Frankenstein started getting really depressed. I'm speaking about it in the third person because I almost feel like I'm not even that person anymore, like that I was when I was as depressed as I was back then around it because I was like, this is not what I dedicated my whole life to. It started to feel inauthentic, if I could use that word. The further I started going, like soon as 2000 rolled into 2001 and we had still not been signed and they were telling me to change a bunch of stuff, I wasn't feeling it. Like I tried to feel it. I attempted to feel like, how can I get to where everybody's chasing this sound? And there was always this voice in the back of my head. It's like, this is not why you did it. This is not why you dedicated your whole life to this art form. Like, you know, and I hate to use this word because I'm not suggesting for a second that anybody who did chase it is this. But me personally, the word sellout was coming in my mind all the time. Now, was that self-inflicted? I don't know. But I can tell you that that's how I was genuinely feeling. And I could never blame anybody else for whatever they were doing, what they were chasing. But I knew that it just didn't feel right. It was at that point that I made a conscious decision that I would no longer do it professionally that I would no longer, like I would continue doing hip hop, which is one of the reasons why I have countless and countless like pieces of material. Because I've had a studio in the basement of my house since I was 16 years old, and I've never stopped making the music. I just stopped sharing it with the world. And at that time, again, you know, we're talking before like YouTube was a phenomenon, before the internet was a phenomenon. The, the only way to get your music out was through the typical channels of like, you know, pressing your records, getting them to DJs, moving it that way. And that entire industry part of it was something that I failed to adapt to. And that's, an, I think, just an important part of the story because I would say that might have been a shortcoming on my part, right? Like if I could give that person advice, I could have turned to him at this point and said, hey, listen, be arrogant about your sound, stop chasing it, and just go back to knowledge yourself and put it out. But the truth is, I was standing alone at that point, and I didn't have the same team I had. And this is why I think the early part of this you know, paragraph, I would say, is you can't do it alone. And I didn't have my two generals that were a principle in trying to get knowledge itself to that next level. And in hindsight, I think that that probably hurt Frankenstein as an artist more than anything else. We're just not continuing on the trajectory of what we had started, which was being our own label, the way maybe loud music or Def Jam evolved into something bigger and bigger. And, and let's face it, there were a lot of labels in the early 90s that also had started in hip hop, even in New York, like Sleeping Bag comes to mind where, you know, they were a great label, but then disappeared. Chemistry Records, who put out Diamond D. You know what I mean? Like one of the most epic artists, I think, of the golden era, you know, ends up kind of disappearing. So it was definitely a challenge, right? And at the same time, and I know I'm kind of drifting around here, it was important to note that 
we had also recorded almost 80% of the Rap Essentials. So I don't know if you remember that album, Rap Essentials. Yeah, it comes to mind. I was doing a lot of research for this episode. And believe me, after a certain while, it just blurs everything. You know, the names, the tracks, the videos. But yeah, that comes to mind. I think I actually picked off one of Thrust's tracks off that for his episode that we played not too long ago. The Rap Essentials was like, um, you know, one of the first, like, I would say, Canadian hip hop albums released by Beat Factory in 1996. Mm. Right. So this two, three year period around all this was interesting because and I just you know pulled it up for our own purposes. Here. But if you look at like the entire track listing here and there were like 12 tracks. So Boiling Point was done by Concrete Mob. That was mixed and produced in my studio. Scam was a producer. I helped mix and engineer with him in my studio, right? Like, um, you know, Sunlight by YOK and DJX. That was done in my studio. Red Life, Who's Talking Weight remix. That was done in my studio. Danny O, Dear Hip Hop. That was produced by Scam. I helped mix and engineer for him. Um, 21 Years was done by Shaw Claire and Day, which we were working together. So you look at... You know, you look at this entire like setup and I can tell you that and th this is something really interesting that not a lot of people know. Day and I, because Day was running Knee Deep Records at that time, we had shopped this idea that we were doing a Toronto record called Mad Fiber with these exact artists because we had we either had mixed, produced or engineered all these tracks and we were shopping the idea of saying, hey, we're going to put this out under Knowledge Yourself Knee Deep and this is another one of those scenarios like at the same time where you know, the, the label, another label runs with the idea and was willing to pay these artists up front. Obviously, we didn't have the cash um, to do. Uh, Cardinal's Naughty Dread is also on this album to give you an idea of like how many tracks like were coming from our group that we just ended up not being able to pull off a lot of things. So all these things happening in, I'd say, like a two, three, four year period started to becoming increasingly discouraging around what we were doing. And that, I would say, is what kind of contributed more than anything else, I, I don't think it was like a silver bullet or one grain of sand or one straw on the camel's back. I think it was just an accumulation of all these things happening at the same time that I basically had to say, in order for me to stay in love with hip hop, I had to leave the industry. If I could say it, that's probably the best way I can put it. Basically, in hindsight, it was self-preservation. 100%. Because I got to tell you, those years, like I, definitely between 99 and 2001, um, and maybe 97 to 2001 more, were some of the more darker years of hip-hop for me personally, that I was just like, I can't, and I excuse my language here, but I was literally saying to myself, I can't fuck with this industry. It's just... It's not what I wanted to sign up for. I just felt that I was no longer the architect of my universe. And I always believed in that fundamental that we're like Shakespeare or any other playwright. Like you are writing the story to your life. Which characters get written in and which characters get written out. You have the pen in your hand. They're largely up to you. That's um, right. When you stop being who you are, then who are you going to be? You know, it just makes total sense that you basically said, OK, I have to step away, do a little pause here and just take care of myself, get my stuff in order, do my own music, just concentrate on my own self. And like I said, that self-preservation comes in. I think that was really important. And hindsight, I think it was the right decision. You might have taken a hit, but, you know, now with the maturity of the social media platforms, now is the perfect opportunity to get all your stuff out there and videos out. You can get the audio clips. 
Instagram, you can connect with everybody. And people like us, like the fans, are on the same platforms looking for you guys. So I think it's all worked out in the end anyway. I mean, did you guys lose out on money and some of the other stuff? Yeah, for sure. Ultimately, what is money? You know, if you lose yourself, that's the worst thing that could happen. And just by listening to you, you basically pulled over the side of the road and just waited out the storm. So, you know, props to you and everybody that was in the same type of situation back in the day. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you said it best. I mean, you know, and having this conversation kind of helps kind of streamline that philosophy, which is the very reason I was in it was for self-expression. In fact, not only me, but so many others. So when self-expression started to not even be a consideration or started becoming less of a consideration, and I got to be honest with you, like it was a bad, let's say maybe business decision. You can say that, you know, I mean, the business of it is what you probably could have focused on, but that's not the reason why we got into it. And that's right. And I think that that's, that is like almost Frankenstein's been in a time capsule, if you will, in, in a sense that I, I never allowed those exterior things of like how you're going to earn money affect this thing. I was very protective of hip hop. Like I would be protective of my wife or anybody else that I feel fond of. Like yeah, I'm not going to just let any sleep with it. Absolutely. Yeah. Moving on, I just wanted to just take a look at a few things here regarding one of these social media platforms. Now, I just you probably already know this. I mean, it depends on how much you actually look at the analytics and, you know, who's following your music, your subscribers and stuff like that. But you have fans worldwide. And it's truly impressive how many people stuck by your side and kept vigil at your YouTube channel, especially hoping that you would one day rise again. And so let's just check out some of the numbers on Spotify. Now, remember, for everybody that's listening, Frankenstein was away from the game, still recording, but not really out there for people to find. So unless you were actively looking for Frankenstein, it seemed like he was gone. Check out these numbers. Spotify, you have almost 12,000 monthly listeners. 12,000. That's amazing. And it breaks down into some of these core demographics, some of the countries. The first one is Paris, France, which has 242 monthly listeners. The next comes to Berlin, 212 monthly listeners. Santiago, Chile. I'm sure DJ Kimo, <laughs> we did an episode on him right at the beginning on our Canadian uh, music rock and rap episode. And we said Santiago, Chile. I'm sure he was like saying you bunch of donkeys. Anyways. <laughs> So it was 211 monthly listeners, Zurich, Switzerland, 184 monthly listeners, Mexico, 177 monthly listeners, huge in South America, like off the charts, Colombia, Brazil, all over the place. You mentioned Japan, Australia. So for the people that are listening, you know, we just got to speak straight up facts here. Your music, your reach is worldwide and everybody that's running in the game alongside you back from the day you guys are all in the same boat you guys have fans all over the place so i just wanted to mention that and i think it's important that you can see that there's this following that's there and i also noticed that for example your youtube channel your subscribership is going up as well because things are being promoted here and there people are listening you know people share things they share the blogs the comments on instagram and then people start finding out about you and they're like oh damn this is good music we had a guy from the states 
saying, I never knew you guys had good music up in Canada. <laughs> like, yeah. No. It's nuts. And you know what? I mean, listen, when I hear that kind of stuff, obviously it touches your soul. I mean, I can tell you like part of this resurrection, if you will, you know, for the pun on Frankenstein, which is, you know, a few years back, one of my friends brought to my attention that somebody had posted The Rain Is Gone, Frankenstein on YouTube. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's cool. Like, I never really paid it any mind. And he's like, no, I don't think you understand. It's like two million hits on The Rain Is Gone. I'm like, there's what? And it's like, like if you type in Frankenstein, The Rain Is Gone, not on my page, but like, I don't know who posted it, but it's got like 2.3 million hits. And I was like, that's like with no marketing, no, like nothing of any kind. Like, as you know, like, I've been, yeah, I've been gone, right? And it occurred to me why I made the music in the first place, which is like, I believe in my heart that there's enough like real individuals in the world that recognize when somebody is doing it the way we're doing it. Not to chase anything, but because of what I said to you, which is just, I'm simply a conduit. Like when I sit behind the boards, this like God is speaking to us through music. You know what I mean? Like the world speaks to us right through, through the beauty of things. You know, when the sun shines or when a flower is a certain way or when, you know what I mean, like a, you know, something touches you like a blade of grass, whatever you find beauty in the world, we all know that we're connected in one way or another to this thing called the universe. My connection to the most beautiful things happens to be this way. This is the way I can allow the beauty of something to flow through me to maybe touch others. And the ones that get it, get the sincerity in it beyond anything else like you know and you know i can't tell you enough about this but i know when i used to step into a lot of hostile environments whether they were like clubs or other areas of the world where like hip-hop was like a very like competitive force i always kind of feel like the same way like i don't necessarily run with the crew i kind of run with the universe like it's got my back because i'm doing it genuinely like i'm not trying to front i'm not trying to pretend something i'm not I've never been that way. And I kind of feel like when I step in a room, it's like you're rolling with me already. If you're part of this thing called the universe, like you roll with me. And if you're rolling with me, then we all become untouchable. That's kind of how my music has always been a part of it. And when I see this stuff, it's kind of encouraging because I feel like that's what it was always meant to be. It was just meant to be something that other people can turn to and say, I identify with what this dude is saying. Sonically, the sounds touch me. And if your day is better for it, if you think slightly different for it, I mean, like even the lyrics in uh, The Pain, you know what I mean? Which is like, where life, I can't stand the pain or the struggle. No matter what I do, I seem to find trouble. Like, that's all of us. Like, we are all in a pain. We're all in a struggle. And sometimes, no matter what we do, we seem to find like we're stuck in the same place. And a lot of the concepts are universal, which is kind of the intent of the whole Frankenstein knowledge of self-sound is to make you know, individuals all over the planet to speak to and say like, dude, you're not alone. Like we got each other. I just wanted to get into a little bit about your musical inspirations here. I saw that you listed some stuff and then we're going to talk a little bit about your tracks. So some of your musical inspirations that you mentioned in one of your videos, uh, UTFO, The Juice Crew, Marley Marl, Big Daddy Kane. That guy is still kicking it strong, Big Daddy Kane. I saw him on NPR on YouTube. That was like fantastic. KRS-One, Run DMC, Beastie Boys, Public Enemy, Jungle Brothers, Eric B. and Rakim, Pete Rock, CL Smooth, Wu-Tang. Like all these guys we grew up with. So we were all listening to the same stuff. And I think that's why we can relate so well to each other. Even if we didn't know that 
you know, other artists existed here in Toronto or we didn't know you specifically or we only found out about you later. Or even if people are finding out about you now, they can see this uh, this connecting undercurrent amongst all the artists in that industry, in that hip hop movement back in the day. Right. 100 percent. Now we're going to just talk about a few of your tracks. We have a number of clips here that we're going to be playing throughout this episode. And for all of you that are listening, you're going to be in for an experience. You won't forget, trust me, if you haven't heard Frankenstein's music, watch out. It's on. The main thing that I can say about your music from my point of view is uh, it's layered and constructed in a way that you can listen to your tracks over and over and over again. And that's a sign of some monster skill, let me tell you. Hence, you know, you came up with the tag Frankenstein and your laboratory of sick beats, right? That's, yeah, the whole premise here is that you're just taking something, putting everything together, adding in your bit of spice, just letting, you know, like you were saying before, God, just work through you get that message out you know speaking to people through the music and it's true people and i'll get into this later but some of the comments you'll hear i don't know if you've seen these comments but when you hear what i have to say you might find it a little bit surprising some of the tracks that i wanted to start off with the first one is all hands Check my specs on my stats every time I rock tracks. I make people wanna listen. Just couldn't bear the thought of ever missing. Frank, Dad, I thank all the mad scientists who's on everybody's lips. Cause every time I speak, you just don't wanna miss every word that I say. My vocal tones vary. Just to take the grabby girl the milk like a dairy. Yeah, she might crave me by the way I phrase grammar. But we are just words in a whole different manner. But don't pledge allegiance. It's not about that. Cause every time that I rap, I just don't sound flat. You could bless the gods for the way that I slam. Step in the jam. The mic's in my hand. Like audio too black, I don't care. But when I turn the party out, all oh, hands is in the air. All oh, hands is in the air. The next one is Frankenstein's pain. As long as I can remember, people have hated me. They looked at my face and my body, and they ran away in horror. In my loneliness, I decided that if I could not inspire love, which was my deepest hope, I would instead cause fear. You can feel the pain, the strain on my brain. No matter what I do, homeboy, you never change. What is life? Can't stand the pain or the struggle. No matter what I do, I seem to find trouble. Shit from my past, evil deeds that I've done. Can't correct shit with a gun. Maybe I should run. Maybe I should hide. Maybe I should chill and work a nine to five. I put the knife away and live right another day. Looking for the silver lining, but I only see gray. Never shoot the rock. The next one is Strangers to the Eye. It's your energy straight from the throne. No matter how we live, kid, we all die alone. As life goes on, time goes by. People that I want to seem strange to the eye. As life goes on, time goes by. People that I want to seem strange. As life goes on, time goes by. People that I want to seem strange to the eye. As life goes on, time goes by. Sometimes I wonder why people slip on by. Check the wild pro 
profile or the style that I'm painting. Hip hop ever changed in black, it's still amazing. Control Trump itself, steady on a quest. To do what I gotta do to make my shit fresh. Always wanna hush, don't know really who to trust. The next one that I wanted to look at is mostly the voice, a tribute to Guru. That gets you up. It's mostly the voice that makes you bug. A lot of rappers got flavor, some got skills. But if the voice ain't dope, then you need to up steps one, he gets done. Not by my Glock though, my mic is like a Magnum son. It's Frank Estino, what up? To Google and Primo, much respect. I sit in the lab and reflect. The drop a gangstar joint so you can never forget. Gifted, unlimited rhymes are universal. The first time I heard you, homeboy, I took a personal. Above the clouds now, where the beats are original. Movements of breath, effect, the subliminal. I grab the mic in my hand and watch hip hop change in ways I can't understand. Whatever they say in the streets. And the last one in this bunch is the Projects remix. Like this, y'all. Check me out. I shouldn't have left you without a hill rhyme for all of y'all except to live for the streets projects love the beats what? slaying while I'm laying honey's all up in the sheets and make it hot to death but that's just the way we scripted so you could take it home smoke that sh and get lifted uh. gifted unlimited rhymes like gun clips what? vocabulary banger verbally the terrorist spit the butter sh flex it every time we rhyme construct the pure blend homogenize and refine hip hop you don't stop reason why we made it created for these bitch rappers that love it but want I wanted to get into some of the quotes that you've mentioned, you know, while you were discussing back and forth with some of the subscribers online who were listening to your music, the hip hop heads who are like, what's going on? Talk to us. Give us something to eat here while we're on this diet, because let's face it, a lot of the people that are in the same boat as us, they're not really into the new music. They want to listen to the old stuff. And they're really focused on the artists as well, saying, what happened to this guy? What happened to that guy? You know, what's going on? Like, why aren't we hearing about it? They're really interested. So the first quote from you uh, said that you never really stopped recording music. You just stopped sharing it. And this is what you mentioned previously. So you said that you stopped sharing with labels and industry cats and because they were moving in a different direction than you. And you also said that it took some years to realize that you could share your sound with the world as you intended without any filter or contrived artistic direction. And again, that goes back to what you were saying just before we were mentioning in that section about why you were off the grid for a little while. It's, I think it's really important. Another quote is, you call yourself Frankenstein as conceptually hip-hop music then was a lot like Frankenstein's theme. So do you just want to touch on that a little bit? Yeah. So, you know, when you're coming up with a name to represent what you are, you know, it can be a daunting process, right? You know what I mean? Especially like different eras had different names that were hip, right? Like obviously in the early nineties, late eighties, you know, big daddy Kane, like you had like these very lavish type names, um, you know, and as it grows, like, you know, people come up with, with different names. For me, it was more symbolic of like, what is it that we do in hip hop? You know, I try to get to the root of what is hip hop in a way? And the Frankenstein theme is like reoccurring in hip hop in the sense that 
a big chunk of it was taking a lot of old breakbeat records or records that other people may have forgotten about, you know, taking a kick or a snare from one record or, you know, a breakbeat from one record, a bass line from a James Brown record, a trumpet from a Miles Davis record, a saxophone from a Coltrane or a Lou Donaldson record. You start to understand that hip hop in its essence is a piecing together of other life records, putting it back together in a way that wasn't there before and bringing new life out of it. In a sense, many of the golden era hip hop, like the entire era was a Frankenstein effect, you know, from from everything that we did was taking pieces of the old, putting them back together and then bringing new life into it. And that to me was like. That's what I did as an artist. I'm Frankenstein in the laboratory, literally going, you know, to dusty old record shops, bringing back almost records from the dead, piecing them back together again and bringing new life into them and having an entire new generation understand that, dude, this came from an Isaac Hayes record. This thing came from a Lou Rawls record. Like they don't understand it maybe at first, but that's what to me hip hop is. And that's how I came up with the name. And obviously there's other parallels, like, you know, being in a, in a science laboratory versus being in a music laboratory, all those kind of conceptual ideas I found were in line. And then obviously my first name being Frank kind of made it, uh, you know, cool. And then when the name morphed into Frankenstein or Frankiano, obviously my Italian heritage, you know, kind of seeped into a little bit of like how people would nickname me so forth. Sure. But the Frankenstein name was more conceptually what I did more than what I was called as like an individual. And, and people got to it. Like they understood that I was kind of like a mad scientist in the laboratory doing what we did and bringing new life to things. And I think that that's why it stands the test of time, right? I always look at music in the sense that something could be old, something could be new, but very few things are like literally timeless or classic. And, you know, you mentioned on how we layer stuff. I mean, to me, if my sound doesn't hypnotize me, I don't feel like it will hypnotize the audience. So I go after sonic exploration, like in a way that it can hypnotize you, that the more you hear the record, the more it starts to be hypnotic because there's layers in there that I put subliminally that you don't even know are in there at different levels, right? Like it's one of my trademark things. Like there'll be instrumentation in the instrumentals that you can't hear at first, that you don't even know they're there. They're almost subliminal, but they're in there. And that way, the more you hear it, the more the music is almost like life where it's an enigma. It keeps moving all the time. And you can't quite place your finger on why you don't get bored of it. But that's one of the reasons why like, I can listen to the pain 30 years later, 20 years later, and it still hypnotizes me to this day for me. I don't know if it does for everybody else, right? But that's what it does for me. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. And I share the same point of view. So, for example, when we do a podcast, I mean, we try to do the best job that we can. If you can listen to your stuff over and over and over again, and I mean, it's not bragging or arrogant about your product or what you're putting out there, but... If you can just sit back and just listen and have a laugh and enjoy the conversation back and forth, you're doing something right. And people pick up on that. And that comes through at all levels. And especially with your music, I find the same thing. The more you listen to it, you're like, oh, wait, there's that little bit there. And then you're focusing on that. And then you find that there's like a, a flourish. You got some synth coming in at a certain point. You do something with that. And then you do something with your lyrics. There's always this movement back and forth, center, up and down. Then you have the beat in the back. It's really cool. And I think for a lot of people, especially in our age group, that's what we grew up with. 
And so we're not to say we're connoisseurs, but we have a certain quality level. We, a certain palette, yes. That's right. Palette. We want things to be at a, in a certain range according to what we think should be sounding right, authentic, good music. Good lyrics, good instrumentals, all of it. And even like the artists that have worked with you throughout the years, I mean, you know, they can rap, they can sing, they have that flow. You just, you can't fake that. And the type of music that you guys are putting back out, it's totally amazing. But yeah, you know, um, music, not to digress, but I'll say music in itself is a strange phenomenon. That it's one of the rare things that people seem to feel like you need to push the the envelope into completely different things all the time. And if we take Louis the Thirteenth cognac as an example, which is like a five thousand dollars bottle, and and I don't know, they've been making that same bottle with the same method, with the same type of formula for almost I don't know 100, 200 years, simply because it's like when you capture something that is elegant and timeless, then you don't really and again excuse my language but you're not supposed to fuck with the process right so i'm not suggesting that other new cognacs shouldn't come out but louis the 13th you can't really mess with it like that's what it is like coke classic or anything else that you fall in love with from a historical perspective like it was made a certain way can you imagine da vinci or michelangelo changing you know the sistine chapel every few years just to stay hip with the current art it'd be nonsense to do that unfortunately music doesn't have enough of those soldiers saying like the process has been perfected for a reason, and we try not to mess with the process, not because we're against evolution, because I think that's always in context. You know I mean? You always have to understand that that's a part of it, and it's moving forward. But to undermine the fact that the golden era hip-hop was a reason for what it is, when I sit behind the boards, I just go back to the exact same process that I know gave me the formula to make Louis the Thirteenth cognac, except I'm making Frankenstein hip hop. To me, it's the same thing. It's like I will not mess with the formula. I will mm -hmm. always look at, and I think Guru and Gangstar were a big part of that same philosophy. I think even Primo had said that a few times, where it's like it's we might have changed a few things, but it's the same formula. When I sit behind the boards, I sit behind the MPC, and I use a, an MPC and an SP twelve hundred. I'm telling you that I don't mess with the formula, and I don't mess with the philosophy. And that's what happened in 2000, 2001 Was like people were asking me to, to change the Louis the Thirteenth cognac recipe, and I was like, I spent my whole life working on this thing. You asking me to change it? Like yeah. I can't. I just can't do it. Well, it's just like cars. It's the same type of analogy. You might have the new car versus the old car, the classic, whatever it was. You know, the Hondas back in the day, the Toyotas. There was something that they had. The quality, how it drove, how it handled. They're still cars. The new one and the old one. They're still cars, but they're different, and you can tell the quality. The newer one might have all the bells and whistles, all the gadget, the tech. But you know what? If these people went to try the old car, they'd be like, oh, yeah, uh, yeah, I'm getting, you know, like a different experience out of this different vibe. It's a different ride. And that ride is actually really good. Man, I never knew I was missing this. And it's the same thing. Right. And I think that's why a lot of people just aren't aware of what they're missing. And hopefully with this podcast episode and, uh, you know, interviews like this, we can get your music, your experiences out there and share this with everybody. And hopefully, you know, people will get reinvigorated or even if for the uh, new listeners, they can get interested in the old school stuff, which is really always current. If you think about it, 100 percent, 100 percent. Now, I just wanted to get into some of the fan quotes that I was mentioning before. So I just want you to listen to these. OK, this one kid, he goes, I'm like 19. 
I don't have the experience to judge different styles of hip-hop, but I got to say there's something magical in the particular style of Toronto MCs. He goes, I don't know, man. It just feels like a whole different league to me. Another guy goes, never stop making music, Frankenstein. He goes, now is the time for you to shine by doing your thing. This one's a really cool one. He goes, man, once I heard that joint, it spontaneously got stuck on my head like a fly on flypaper. He goes, mad respects, bro. I really hope we see you back on the hip-hop map. Hip-hop heads need people like you. Peace and love. Another one says, at Frankenstein Hip Hop, uh, real hip hop is still alive and kicking, bro. Real heads know what's up and where to look for it. If they wouldn't, then you wouldn't get as much love as you do now. Keep doing what you're doing because real cats know what's real. Much love and keep it live. The next ones are, please give all of your unreleased stuff a proper vinyl treatment. People would sell their parents to get hold of your grails. <laughs> That's pretty funny. Uh, the next one is, I listen to this masterpiece every day when I wake up. The rhythm is a travel. And again, that goes back to the story. You know, you got that sonic experience, that journey that you keep talking about. And here's the last one that I'm going to finish off with this particular bunch. Is this guy still alive? (laughs) (laughs) That was good. This was, I guess, back when there was that quiet time where you weren't putting stuff up on your YouTube channel. People thought that the channel was dead. They're like, okay, like, what's going on? Is this guy still around? It's funny because, like I said, a lot of people are saying, thankfully, you're still around. We're here. We're listening. And that's always a good thing. Next, let's see. So I wanted to talk a little bit about your influence worldwide and a lot of the times, I don't know what it is with the hip hop scene, the T dot sound, the rap that's coming from the old school Toronto vibe and South America, Colombia, Brazil. Like, why is there so much love for the hip hop sound down there? Is there some sort of special connection between the two places? Perhaps there's like good promotion machine over there. Maybe there's some expats running the scene over there. I'm not sure, but it just seems like you guys got a special connection with South America. I'm talking like off the hook. Like a lot of the underground DJs are playing your stuff all the time and they just they think you're amazing. And, you know, rightfully so, like stuff is really good. Like, what's your take on that? It's interesting because I've had, uh, even over the years, I had a few cats from Colombia reach out to me to want me to do a show down there. And um, I can tell you, like, it was, again, just a humbling experience. And I would say, and I don't know if this is like the actual reason, but I would say that the fact that obviously we're on this side of the pond might make a little bit of a difference. So for instance, a lot of our sound was in North America to begin with. So a lot of these cats, I'm sure are going to find their own way of getting music out through, you know, fat beats or any of the other regular genres. And I think to the points that you've made already a few times that when you hear anybody coming from Toronto, there's a distinctiveness about it that pulls people in. The actual reason why becomes very hard to pinpoint, I would say. But whenever you create something distinctive and then you follow it up with like a a certain attitude around it and a certain like aggressiveness at the same time that it has a certain musical sonic quality. I think if those kids are probably growing up with the same kind of people we grew up loving, like for instance, they might have grown up loving Wu-Tang. They may have grown up loving Primo. They may have grown up loving Pete Rock and Seal Smooth or Marley Marley. I would probably say that a lot of those same dudes that are loving us must have grown up loving the same kind of music we did because that's what we're most influenced by. Like a lot of times people say to me, hey, Frank, what's most responsible for your sound? And for me, I call it like the hip hop triangle. Like I've said it many times, like if it wasn't for Primo, RZA and Pete Rock, 
that's kind of like my sound, almost like the moodiness and, you know, eeriness of RZA, the boom bap of Primo mixed with the soul of, you know, Pete Rock all in one record. That's kind of what I try and go for. And then the base of this pyramid is Marley Marl, which is like, it's funky, like it gets you involved. You know what I mean? That's what my particular sound is. And I think a lot of people, if you go back to like the 90s that we were growing up in, I guarantee you, like almost all the artists, whether it's Cardinal, Shot Claire, you know, Red Life, like a bunch of artists that maybe we did or didn't even work, I guarantee you that they all were loving the same sounds that I'm talking about. Like I can remember DJ X would kill Pete Rock and Seal Smooth Records, like just absolutely, you know, kill them. Wu Tang was like, come on, we already know. Like Wu Tang was like a phenom beyond, right? Um, sure. Yeah. It, 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 and Primo, like the amount of records that Primo has touched, like, and I'm going to say something that may or shouldn't even be controversial, but when Come Clean dropped, you know, with J.U., there wasn't a single record that was that like impactful, I think, at a moment in time, which was like, it just made you say like, what the hell is that? Like, it just like shakes you to the core. Like when it came out, I can almost make an argument to say that it was singly handily, maybe the best beat ever created for golden era hip hop. Like it just, it has all those elements. It's eerie. It's boom back. There's a soulfulness about it. It's like, it's crazy. You know what I mean? And I think if I'm putting a finger on it, I would say these folks from South America or wherever else in the world, they're all in love with the same thing I'm in love with. Like those kind of records. Like when you hear uh, cash rules, everything around me, cream, it's undeniable. Like the record is just undeniably good. You know what I mean? Um, Pete Rocks, you reminisce over you. Like think about reminisce as probably for golden era hip hop heads, one of the best instrumentals songs maybe ever created. I, I would argue to say as well. And you yeah, think no, of that's what an amazing track. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I agree. Yeah. And if you think of the elements that reminisce over you has, you almost have to say that it has the moodiness and the eeriness of like, you know what I mean? What a Wu-Tang record could have because the way the horns are and, and the whole, you know, it's around trouble T Roy, like the guy who dies, their boy. Um, you think of like the soulfulness of Pete Rock in it. And then if you listen to the drums, they're boom back all day long. So, when you start to understand that even those guys are all sharing that triangle and when they get the triangle right, it moves everybody. Like you can't deny, like, for instance, like Biggie's Who Shot You. If you listen to that beat, the Who Shot You beat on Biggie's, you can't deny that it has those things. It's eerie. It's boom back. It's soulful. There's some of the best records I think that we all actually really can unanimously say like, oh yeah, when I heard Reminisce, dude, that's beyond. When I heard Come Clean, oh yeah, yeah, I get, I get what you're talking about. Like that, that's just ridiculous. Like there's certain records that you give them to anybody and they're like, you can't deny them. These tracks that anchor the scene, people just use these as central points to focus on. And it's almost like they have these sonic lifelines out to all the artists and they keep coming back there to draw inspiration from and, and just keep, you know, building on that and sharing their own unique talents and things like that. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, I mean, I can tell you, I, I was at, um, DJX used to have something called the barbecue, which is like um, every Saturday or every few Saturdays, he would have like, you know, rent out a club and play hip hop all night long. And like everybody you, that was into the scene would be there. And I got to tell you, like every time he dropped Reminisce over you, he'd been playing hip hop all night. But when he drops that record, the entire club stops, puts their hands in the air, whether they're puffing, whatever they're puffing. And the whole, the whole club just stops 
when reminisce over you comes up. Like that is like, you know, if I have to tell you, like whenever I try and make a record, whether it's the rain is gone, I try and go after that spirituality if I can get there. Now, I don't always get there, but I'll, you know, I'll die trying on that mountain. If you get what I'm saying, like, mm, absolutely. That, yeah. you know, we call it, we call it like the hunt for the perfect beak. We may never get it, but dude, it's fun trying to go after it. That's really what I try and do all the time. And that's maybe why, like I said, anybody who shares this philosophy, whether they're in South America, UK or whatever, I have a feeling that they're in line with that vibe, like what we share, which is like, yeah, these guys get it. And that's why they're compelled by it the same way we are. Quick question with regards to the stuff that you have in your music vault that you've amassed over the years, what are your plans with that? So what I've been trying to do over the last little bit is gradually bring people up to speed with all the material that they haven't heard. Okay. And, um, and I didn't want to just drop it on them without having like the evolution of it. Right. So the plan is for me to still release that agony and the ecstasy album that no one ever got to hear. So there's a few tracks that they have heard, like for instance, greed, which is on my YouTube channel, the Bahamadia track, you know, so fresh with rust. There's like, I would say about three or four joints that I had already over the last few years released to sprinkle on people. But there's another, I would say at least, you know, it's in the neighborhood of six to eight tracks that I'm just working out now on when to release them, how to, to give people a complete composition of the album that I feel I almost deprived the world of like the agony and ecstasy album should have been released in 2000, you know, in 1999. And I think had it been released under knowledge itself at that time, it may have, you know, I mean, had a different trajectory, but no time like the present. So, and then to boot, I have, I would say another 10 or 15 new tracks that were just developed, I would say in the last 24 months. Like, yeah, I've been working on a ton of new music as well. That isn't part of the agony and the ecstasy experience, but it's almost like the evolution of Frankenstein with that same type feel. You know what I mean? Like where that kind of stuff moves you. And I, listen, I get it. There's like stuff that's, let's say, released in the last 10 years that still does move me from other artists. Like, you know, when Kanye dropped Jesus Walks, I mean, to me, that's like, that's the kind of stuff that's the you know, I mean, It doesn't matter what year it was released in, that will move you that track because I think it's similar to what we're talking about. It has the moodiness of RZA, it's got the boom bapness of Primo, and it's got the soulfulness of Pete Rock. You add those three elements on any track, any time, and then you've got a winner every time. I think a lot of us can't wait to hear the new stuff. It's going to be cool when you release that, especially in terms of listening to your progression and the stuff that you've been working on, especially for a lot of us that have been out of the loop, you can say. I was wondering if you can just very briefly touch on working with Thrust on the So Fresh. I think it was the J-Swing version or another version. I'm not sure. But how did that come about? So J-Swing had approached us to, you know, to basically work on a track there. Now, the thing is, Thrust and I, for years, we always are recording in one way or another with each other. So we had two versions. We had one where Solitaire is doing the hook in the chorus, which um, I believe is on my YouTube channel as well, called So Fresh, obviously, with, with Solitaire doing the chorus. And then the J-Swing version is cuts and scratches in the chorus. So that's really the only difference between the two. We did two versions just because... At the time, and again, this is around that time where, like, you know, individuals in the course over cuts in the course was taking precedent, right? So you had a lot more people just like being in the course versus like the historical, like just having scratches and cuts in the course. So from my perspective, I wanted to give people, you know, a version of 
each to see which one they gravitate to more. Mm-hmm. And um, and that's the way that track came about. Like we were we were doing it for a compilation that Jay Swing was putting out. And every time Thrust and I sit down and do something in the studio, it's really easy. Like it's just one of those relationships that I don't have to really push or pull to get a great track done because mm-hmm. we're on the same vibe, right? Like it happens so organically that it just feels like a glove. Right, like just something that you've always had on your feet, something that just naturally fits into its own puzzle. And it's interesting because the sound that I do with Thrust is not exactly the stuff that I do when I'm just solo. And same with Thrust, like his solo sound is slightly different when Frankenstein is in the mix. And um, we got a current track actually that he's about to release with an artist named Whitey Don. It's called Skylarking, and we're about to. Uh, there's another track that I kind of did for him like recently that had been sitting in the vaults and uh, we, we positioned it. So the thrust relationship goes like kind of beyond words almost and beyond anything. You know I mean, it's probably the most uncontrived relationship I've ever had in hip hop. Like we're just, we're just on the same wavelength without trying. I, I, I might not speak to thrust like for five years, come back and, and do a track like as if we were just hanging out yesterday. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, no, that's, that's cool. And now we're going to look at a few more of your tracks. And the first one is Dropping Gems featuring Bahamadia. Strengthen my inner region so my aura could be demon. Fertilize my creation like ovaries to semen. Spec rhyme but reason clinging to my upbringing. Spirit gotta be that to where I first blessed the legion. Thus spawning the lessons in the songs that I be singing. Thus spawning the lessons in the songs that I be singing. I go for what I know to help the growth of human being. Human being. Looking at my rollie, it's about that time. I advertise like a poet, paint a picture when a poet drop a gem on you then Oh, you part of people know it, that I'm not a mere mortal But extraordinary human, amazing with the microphone Plus the music I be doing is like still the the next one is Shut Em Down, the remix. Check, check one, hit the deck. Frankenstein from the laboratory. Watch me connect with this hip hop audience and all that really matters. Respect for the legends of those that come after. Not the sort of rapper that others be made from. Hip hop is something that you're proud, not ashamed of. The beats all natural, explodes under pressure when the men are separated from the boys. Who's fresher? My rhymes are like grains of sand through the hourglass. As time passes and the masses adjust, in God we trust. Elevators from the dust escape through the mind state woods. It's extraordinary, the beats are kind of rare The essence is the flow, the beat is essential Particularly when you rock the right instrumental I came to get down, hit the floor and shut them down The next track that we're going to look at is Agony and Ecstasy Watch me chill, weather the storm is still shining, bright rhyming. 
climbing through these galaxies and stars, universal nightspheres, one sun and quasars, Frankenstein divine, coordinated verbal energy, from agony to ecstasy, we penetrating mentally, generated, my style long anticipated, why you get old, we coming through rejuvenated, fresh and innovative, with the shit that's mass selective, we rocking for a profit, then collect the whole percentage, never sit still, instead we built to find glory, with the ill type script, created from the laboratory, same shit, different story, black, black, I keep the next one is Greed, a hip-hop story. This is going out to hungry gold diggers Cause Frankie and baby's like a diamond on your finger Not a rock in the rough I'm like a gem in your hand You see it's all superficial but you wouldn't understand Yes, fake, dicey, bitch ass Word, straight word, straight up The most shady, most shady Feed you to the vultures I need to knock that shit off That's what shit Weak ass, fake, dicey, bitch ass Word, straight word, straight up The most shady, the most shady and it's a shame, brothers act like they run the game, he's just a bench warmer, performer with no name, I still reign, on greedy vultures to take aim, it's the sharpshooter, Glock one to your... We got two more here, the next one is So Fresh. Uh-huh. I sparked the intellect, baby, you should watch me when I say it I'm magic on the mic, people like the way I spray it Rock one and a check two for the status A legend for the way I flip on the apparatus Rappers pray like menace when I rock the joint Lyrically they fear me, weak rappers get the point I'm razor sharp when I spark, clever like a secret agent My attitude on a hole like this and get flagrant I'm a spark, isn't black for the 2G The way I rock beats and the poetry See, rappers get shook when I come to cook I'm a hard Cover rapper, girls read the whole book. Look, I'ma make it simple, rather and quite plain. The way I take aim and pop shots at the brain. Bang, bang, like a... And to round this group off, the rain is gone. Now it's all about you to try to front kid and act like that shit ain't true. Used to run bad capers, take the papers and chat. All you want, stay strong, I had your back to the end. But then things change. Now we're going to move on to just a few other topics here. Just very briefly, some of the highlights of your career in terms of maybe some artists that you work with that really just shook the house and you're like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. Or maybe some special event that was special and unique that maybe sort of just kept you going or added to that spark of creativity, you know, that you already have. Yeah, you know what? That's a great question. So I'll tell you, and these are like easy because it comes to mind. Like a minute you said it comes to mind easily. So the real first epic moment for me as far as my career in hip hop had to be that time period that we were in New York shopping our demo. And a cat, which you may be familiar with, he's an icon in New York City, is DJ Eclipse. I don't know if you ever heard of DJ Eclipse. Yeah. Right. So DJ Eclipse was working for a record company down there and um, he was humble enough to make us sleep in his home. So like, we were shopping our demo and um, we had come across his label and he was like, what are you guys doing out here? Like, this is New York City. He's like, where are you guys staying? And like, are we just been like crashing either in our car or like in the parking lots of motels? And he's like, dude, he's like, you can't be doing that. You're going to get killed up here. He's like, he's like, I want you to, you're staying at my house tonight. Kind of thing. So here's a dude that doesn't know us from Adam, but because we are like hip hop cats that he can see 
the hunger and passion, I guess, in our eyes, invites us to his home to stay. And um, it was like a Saturday night. He's like, um, I'm taking you guys with me tonight. It's a record release party for, and I think it was a, an, an artist out of um, Nervous Records. I can't remember if it was Mad Lion or something like that, but it was like, I'm pretty sure it was a Mad Lion record release party. So he takes us to this party that is like invite only. And I got to tell you, you know, these two kids coming from Toronto, we're in the same room now with EPMD, Special Ed, Brand Nubians, Mary J. Blige, Wu-Tang, Karis One, like every, like the entire hip hop scene of New York, it seemed like was in this building. That's crazy. And, yeah. And like we're rubbing elbows with like guys that we had, we were just writing down the record companies of these artists. You know what I mean? Like a week earlier and like now we're in a room with the biggest hip hop artists on the planet, just like Robin Elvis and Eclipse is introducing us around the room. We thought we had died and gone to heaven. Like it, wow. it was like, it was nuts, right? So we get there, um, first person to go up is, believe it or not, ODB. And ODB gets on stage and just like terrorizes the entire room. And then right after him, Special Ed goes up. And then right after him, Kara Swan goes up. And I'm talking like these guys are just like freestyling. Like then Buckshot Shorty goes up. Like it's like one incredible MC after another coming up on stage. And I'm looking at AZ and David Oyes there. And we look at each other and we're like, yo, we got some work to do. You know what I mean? Like it was moving in a way that is hard to describe because I don't think you could ever capture that moment again. Like having that many MCs at that level of golden era hip hop stardom in the same room doing their thing. It was like shocking. You know what I mean? How dope it was. Like, you know what I mean? The instrumentals that they were rocking, like beats that we hadn't heard yet. Like, so I'm talking about like ODB. Like, I think um, it's the first time I heard him perform Oh Baby, I Like It Raw. Oh Baby, I Like It Raw. Like, that's the first time I heard it. It wasn't even out yet. He wow. was just, he was performing his album before the album comes out. And we ended up hearing it later. Karis One did the same thing. Like there was a bunch of like tracks that he was rocking on stage. We're like, we never heard this shit. Like, what is this? And then like, you know, in the coming subsequent months and stuff, it's like Karis One releases. So it was, you know, it was crazy like to us. You know what I mean? So that was definitely like the most impactful. I'll probably say the second most one was when Biggie came to Toronto for the first time to perform. It was in a Jamaican food court in the city and the promoter, I'm not going to say his name to maybe save him some embarrassment, but the promoter has sold way more tickets than the capacity of the building would even allow. So there was literally, I don't know if I would say there was maybe thousands on the street, but there was definitely hundreds on the street of cats that had bought tickets and couldn't get in. And you could feel the pressure on security at the door, like just the pent up frustration of people not being allowed in because, you know, the fire chief or whatever wasn't allowing anybody in. It was all kinds of stuff. Now, we had inside access because an artist that I was producing for, Nasty Howie, at the time, DJ X's artist that I was producing for, and we did a couple of 12 inches with him, he was opening up for Biggie. So we were on stage, on Biggie's stage, before Biggie's about to come in. And I got to tell you, so Nasty Howie does his, you know, couple of song sets, and then Biggie comes out to Unbelievable. It's unbelievable, Biggie, Biggie Smalls is, and I got to tell you, I've never seen an audience this jacked up in my life. Like, and I don't know if it was the intensity of how many people were packed in the place. At the same time, Biggie was like the artist and 
and you know the beat coming through the speakers and the way the sound system sounded in a food court because in a food court everything is way more condensed so instead of being in a big auditorium where the sound dissipates you have this condensed sound all these bodies condensed all this frustration and then the minute that beat comes on the audience outside gets even more crazy so they bum rush the building biggie doesn't even get through the song like he's halfway through the song where the entire audience is on stage with them turntables disappear it was like i don't know if you could have scripted like if we had you know iphones then to actually take the footage and post it i think like this is something that would have like shocked the masses it was like nothing i had ever experienced before like rock star beyond status kind of thing that must have been like complete madness i wish that somebody would have recorded that and like just you know archived it and put it up on youtube that would have been crazy to see because i could just imagine well no i can't imagine right but i can sort of hazard a guess at the intensity that was there we were all yeah. fans and we were all thinking the same way and it was all influential stuff and these guys were big deal and overselling your venue yeah not uh, not a good move <laughs> if you want yeah. a riot sure if you're looking for a riot yeah it's a good move otherwise yeah not so good <laughs> you know what I can tell you that I never experienced anything like that and then maybe the third most impactful was um, I got a chance along with Thrust and Nasty Howie we opened up for the Fugees the first time they came to Toronto at the Phoenix so that was pretty magical too I mean this is at the height of ooh la 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 and killing me soft like this is at the height of the Fuji phenomenon and you know we were lucky enough to be the group that got selected to open up for them amazing just to hear these stories all of us appreciate you telling us this because outside of what's already out there there's not really that much in terms of specifics or the backstories or the undercurrent that's behind all the music behind the scene you know the stuff that actually makes up the scene makes up the experience that fans never get to hear about or experience themselves firsthand like living vicariously through you and going through all this stuff it's just it's amazing just to listen to this so it's really cool so when you hear this you get you get a sense of how come the fabric of hip-hop for me and those that we roll with was the way it was it's like it's hard to be anything else when you're shaped by these circumstantial things that happen to you between the DJ Eclipse thing and, and you know, Biggie for the first time and, and opening up. It's like, you know, the money of it never really was a part of any of those conversations. It was just like we were, like you said, the naivete of it, like um, the innocence of it is like we'll die on the mountain to protect that foolishly maybe even i don't know you know what i mean but it's like it's just how we're hardwired and it's like you know it's almost like telling a zebra to change its stripes it becomes an impossible feat for those that have it inbred in us the way it is to do anything other than that and that's why i'm humbled by like when other dudes around the world yourself or those who check youtube or see and understand what is that we're doing that they become an extension of this legacy with us yeah and it's also you know on our part it's sharing a little bit of ourselves and uh, our taste our experiences with everybody else and hopefully you know you make a connection with the people that are listening because you know like i said we're promoting this stuff people are checking out the links and everything so it's going well i think now we're going to get into just a few more tracks the first one that we're going to look at is the pain 2 remix yeah long time coming still from the dungeon it's the remix uh, somebody should have told you 
with life Can't stand the pain or the struggle No matter what I do, dog, I seem to find trouble Shit from my past, evil deeds that I've done Can't correct shit with a gun Maybe I should run, maybe I should hide Maybe I should chill, work a nine to five I put the knife away and live right another day Looking for the silver lining, but I only see gray I never shoot the rock or the puff puff While cats come around my way nowadays acting rough Poison the brains, hooked on the chemical They don't give a shit, see, the whole world's trivial Next one is Frankenstein featuring Grimace Love Combined with Frankenstein Check it out Move for the money, don't front. I got you open, rock the spot real hot and burn you up like global warming. Intricate when I speak it, write it, then I freak it. Let's send this party out. Tell me that I'm tweaking. In my NOPs when I'm rocking, in my C's just chilling, parlay still while we flexing poetry. This is wise MC, combining with intelligence. Come in my circle, cipher black, what's the conference? Ladies tell me that they need it, rock my style, then repeat it. Besides your whole frame, like my flow is orthopedic. This is Frankensteinism, knowledge multiply the wisdom. So you can get it straight. And calibrate your inner system I'll be riding to the core Even more than you imagine So the rappers rap and guarantee and satisfaction I'm blasting Coming through with this verbal action Knocking suckers out of date Like your mom is old fashioned I watch your back You watch mine Proper line Grim lover combined With the Frankenstein Hey yo, I watch your back You watch mine Proper line Grim lover combined With the Frankenstein The next one is Frankenstein featuring Chuck Lair So I Yeah Keeps on loving it, but that's another subject, black. I won't touch it. Nah. Just act like she's also and hold her hand when you in public, yeah. My main objective is to grab the mic and wreck it while these other MCs fail to figure out the method I expected. The next one is Frankenstein featuring Luminous Oxygen. That ill shit. Yo, this the remix beat. Yo, check my man. Yo, who's my man? The words are manifest, the blessed to feel right. I bring life when I breathe into the mic. The main field, the spear, or the force. It's been your head like an aircraft G4. Speaking of shit, boy, you just might regret. I break up your crew like the Soviet. And drop heads so they all fall. Not like Cumpty Dumpty or the Berlin Wall. Cause oxygen forms almost every time I speak. You could try 24 or 7 days a week. Another 365 and you still couldn't get near. Cause you couldn't sound fresh even on a leap. You could guess for breath or beg for your death. But don't come near my stage. There's no oxygen. That's right. Put it on. Rock on. Bring it on. The oxygen. It's the oxygen rock for your mind. Check it out. And the last one to round this group off is Shut 'em Down Remix, and the original song was by Pete Rock. 
Shut him down. I wreck for respect, check one, hit the deck. Frankenstein from the laboratory, watch me connect yeah. with this hip hop audience and all that really matters. Respect for the legends and those that come after. Not the sort of rapper that others be made from. Hip hop is something that you're proud, not ashamed yeah. of. The sounds all natural, explodes under pressure when the men are separated from the boys who's fresher. My rhymes are like grains of sand through the hourglass. As time passes and the masses adjust, one God we trust. Elevate us from the dust, escape through the mind state. Words are glorious, it's extraordinary. Yeah. The beats are kind of rare, uh. the essence is the flow. Yeah. The beat is essential, particularly when you rock the right instrumental. I assume there's more of a demand for your vinyl over digital downloads. Is that correct? I'm not as, let's say, tip to the digital aspect of like how people are consuming it, but it does seem that for whatever reason, the vinyl part of it, it could just be obviously because like most things, the vinyl was a lot less manufactured. Like obviously with digital, everything's in stock, meaning you want to download it, you can download it a million times or two times, right? Absolutely. With and I find with everything, like whenever you have a finite limit to something, it all of a sudden makes it more sought after simply because of that finite limit. And and that was another beauty, I think, of that era, which was if you wanted the records, you have to go get the record. You know, I mean, like you could obviously record it off a radio and tape it, and, and that had its own sound. But nothing replaces touching vinyl and and playing it yourself as you put your hands on those grooves. So sure. I think there's an intimacy around vinyl in general that's not just obviously you know polluted to myself but the experience of playing music with vinyl is uniquely different compared to what a digital experience is and i think that when people just listen to frankenstein digitally or any other artist for that matter a big part of the intimacy between you the music and the artist who made it vanishes a bit you're just not touching it. Like, there's a difference between touching a piece of vinyl, putting the needle on the record, and then, you know what I mean, even messing with the record yourself, as DJs often do, right? Where they can stop the record where they want, rewind it back when they want, but they're touching it at the same time. It's almost like the listener becomes a performer themselves in the play. The listener becomes their own version of that. And, you know, another way of saying it is like there's always a difference between watching the movie and reading the book. And uh, that analogy, you know, held true for the longest time, because if I said to you right now, hey, I want you to imagine walking on a beach with the sand in your feet and the water rolling up on it with the wind blowing on you and the sun shining. The listener is creating their own beach. They're creating their own version of what sand feels like on their feet. Like that entire experience becomes personal because I'm giving you the image, but you're creating it in your own mind. Music can be that way when you start to touch it and feel it your own way. When you take all that away, when you're saying, well, no, this is the beach I want you to look at. No, this is the sand and the way it looks at. And this is like, oh, I wouldn't have thought about that at all. And, and all of a sudden, you've just changed the experience. Not good or bad, it just becomes remarkably different. And I think that the vinyl experience is an extension of that type of philosophy, where when you pick up the piece of vinyl and you see the cover and you put it on, you're touching it and you're feeling it, it becomes way more engaging, way more intimate and profoundly deeper, which is what the whole Frankenstein experience for me is all about anyway, when, when I'm trying to work with, with the music. is like I want people to experience it the way I experienced it, creating it. I just wanted to get into a couple of fan quotes before we wrap this up here. And I just want you to listen to these because some of them are funny. Some of them really make you think. The first one, the guy states, he goes, uh, the good side of YouTube. Happy I landed here. 
The next one is one of those tracks where you just fall in love with it within three seconds of hearing it. Now, here's a funny one. A guy goes, oversized clothes and East Coast winters, heavy snow, drafts in corridors, hip hop. Yeah, sounds like a typical Canadian experience. The next one is, this one's pretty interesting. This one individual says, this song saved my life. It was a message. That's nuts. Yeah, it goes back to what you were talking before, you know, God speaking through the music. You're a part of it. And the message is going out there and what people take from it is what's being sent their way to help them out and whatever they're going through. And we never really know what kind of an effect we're having on other people and how we're touching other people's lives until, you know, after everything's said and done and, you know, the accounts are drawn up. But that was pretty profound. You know what? You telling me it, you know, is is pretty profound. And I got to tell you, when I sit down and make stuff, it's with that intent. It's with the intent of changing lives in, in a positive way or or in a connective way or just like grounding us to like the magnificence of our universe. Like that, that's what I try and achieve or attempt to go after every time I sit down. And when, and when people get it that way, then I feel like a sense of real fulfillment that, you know what, it's in line with the intent of what you're trying to do. And intention, I think, if I could be so arrogant to say, like intent around everything in life is probably the most important thing ever, right? I said that to a lot of people. It's like if I walk into a club and I see a girl, my intention is example is just to get her to sleep with me is a lot different how I approach that particular individual versus like I see somebody like that could be my wife or the person I want to spend the rest of my life with. All of a sudden your intention changes. And when your intention changes, the result of what you're going after changes almost dramatically. Right. So, and I always tell people, it's like, what's your intent when you're making your music? What's your intention? Your intention will dictate its result and ultimately what you have after the fact once you've done it. And I've never forgotten that lesson for myself is like my intention around the music is to inspire and to make people understand that the universe is talking to us through this language. And the universe has many ways it expresses itself to us. Sometimes it's visually, sometimes it's sonically, sometimes it's, you know, spiritually, subconsciously. Sometimes it's picking up, like a set of flowers. Sometimes it's looking at the sun. Sometimes it's taking a deep breath. Sometimes it's feeling very present around. But if you're not paying attention to the language that's been architected for us, then you're going to miss so much of the human experience and maybe fall in a place that you might not otherwise have been if you're just paying attention to the universe tapping you on your shoulder, so to speak. That's the way I've always seen it. We got two more here. I'll start with the first one that says, watch all Frankenstein videos. You'll notice all of them have no dislikes and everyone wants them to come back. I guess that, again, was in those quiet periods. But, you know, like I said, the people were there and they were looking. And then the last fan quote we got here is, keep doing what you're doing and let your gift to conceptualize on the sonic level guide you to wherever your creativity takes you. And I think that pretty much says it all right there. You know, just keep doing what you're doing. People appreciate the talent, the dedication, the hard work, the fact that you didn't leave the game because, let's face it, a lot of people did leave the game and we're poorer off for that because, you know, we missed out on their specific style, their creativity, their unique sense of who they were and what they brought to the table as well. We can't ever get that back. 
because it's gone. And most of these guys that weren't able to break through way back when, I mean, they've gone on to do other things. And that's, you know, it's unfortunate, but it did happen. Just before we wrap this up, any final comments or tell people what's coming down the road, you know, mention your channels, anything. It's up to you. Go ahead. First, I want to like I want to thank you for for taking the time because with, without dudes like you, there's no dudes like me, and there's no extension of all these you know amazing conversations and just introducing it to a new audience. I, I'll say you know you brought up the YouTube thing. You know YouTube has always been like almost a blessing and a curse at the same time. And, and what I mean by that is you know back in the day, the only time you ever heard music was to the DJs, and the DJs were kind of like your natural filtration system. And for, I might be dating myself here, but I remember there was a commercial, Nabob used to make coffee and they would be like only the finest beans go into a Nabob, you know, cup of coffee kind of thing. And I felt DJs for the hip hop scene were kind of like that Nabob commercial. It was like only the finest records ever got played. With the YouTube phenomenon, everything gets played. Like everything is there all at one time, every time, which is great in the sense that it gives an opportunity for guys like me that may not have gotten hurt back then to reignite, but makes it obviously ultimately more difficult to find the finest things in. And just that search process becomes even more tedious. So I'm going to encourage the listeners like, hunt for what you want. It's always worth looking and digging and finding and, and exploring. That's part of the journey and the fun. So uh, I would leave that. And then as far as what I got coming out, yes, for sure, I'm going to continue sprinkling, you know what I mean, a lot of these um, gems that I got in the vault as well as the new stuff. And I'm going to be doing that on a more consistent basis simply because I feel the world needs it now more than ever. And COVID and what we've been experiencing, I think, is just a, like a general wake up around that. Like when that started happening, I was just in tune with like, this is just another tap on everybody's shoulder. Like you ain't going to live forever. you got to figure out how to reach people that are special to you. And music is a good way of doing it. It's always been a good way. So look out for that. And that's it. That's Frankenstein in a nutshell. For most of the artists that we've reached out to so far, you guys are all down to earth, just so easy to deal with. You guys are more than willing to communicate with us on social media, work with us, do interviews and things like that while you're doing your actual work. You know, carrying out your careers, you still got your family life, you still got all the other, you know, the headaches of life going on. And, you know, the fact that you guys need time, it's uh, we really appreciate it. And um, I just wanted to mention also for everybody that's listening, we're going to have all of Frankenstein's links on our webpage as well on our Instagram. So you can check us out at Pod Jerky. You can check out Frankenstein Hip Hop Music on YouTube, Instagram. Like I said, we're going to be linking to all the stuff. And, you know, when you do come out with your new music, we'd be more than happy to have you on again. And we can showcase your work and just get your stuff out there and maybe talk about some of the the stories behind that. And again, you know, thanks for coming on the show. Much appreciated and it's reciprocated. Thank you very much. Well, that's it for us here on Pod Jerky. We're going to catch you in the next one. Okay.